You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio, on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. I'm Diana Moxon. On today's show, I am delighted to have in the studio the cast of the upcoming Talking Horse Theatre's production of Tuesdays with Mori. JJ Musgrove and Aaron Krawitz, along with the theatre's new co-artistic director, Adam Bretsky. And later, Dr. Joan Stack, the curator of art collections at the State Historical Society, will be coming in to talk about their new show entitled Benton's Perilous Visions. But first, Adam, Aaron and JJ, how delightful to see you all. Thank, Thank you. you. Nice <laughs> <speaker>. <laughs> <laughs> so before we dive into Tuesdays with Murray, remind me what you were all seen in most recently. Aaron, what were you last in? Last September, Addison Myers and I did memoirs. I played Mark Twain and he played U.S. Grant. Okay. And then the last thing that I did was uh, Sunshine Boys, actually, and I did it with Aaron and with Addison, and it was uh, directed by my wife, uh, Dr. Kate Musgrove, and we did that at Talking Horse Theater last season, I believe it was, yeah. Okay, and Adam, I think the last thing I saw you in was the wedding present, and yes. also with uh, Stable Boys. No, the other one. Uh, yes, I, I work with Off the Cuff uh, Comedy Improv Group, although I am joining the Stable Boys for this performance coming up this month, uh, but yeah, the last time I was on stage at Talking Horse was the wedding present. And that was that was great. I really enjoyed that. And that was an original production. I mean, it sure it was. Never been world premiere. World yeah. premiere. So it was the first time anybody <laughs> got to do that character. So so far, I'm the best at it. You are. You are. You can't be beaten. It was amazing. So for people who might not know who you are, which is hard to believe, give me a brief introduction as to who you are. IRL, as the kids say, in real life. It's my new acronym. Good. Super proud of IRL. Goodness, I guess I'm starting. Um, <laughs> Well, as you mentioned, I am the new co-artistic executive director of Talking Horse Productions. Ed Hansen, the founder of the theater, has just stepped away, although he's still on the board with us. But uh, Rashara Knight and I have taken over the reins for him. And so as part of those new responsibilities, one of my jobs is getting to produce this wonderful production, Tuesdays with Maury. And you have a day job too, right? I do. I work with a, a nonprofit organization called the Institute for People, Place, and Possibility, uh, or IP3 for short. And we uh, we help hospitals that are writing community health needs assessment with data analytics. So that's a pretty full life. You have it right? is. Yeah. Yesterday, for instance, we we opened the show Tuesdays with Maury, and it was a very full day. I was up at 6 a.m. and then I think I finished my day finally officially at 10 p.m. So it was a good long day, but. You know, nothing beats having a little bit of art. <laughs> it doesn't. And JJ, you have a, a, a big other personality too. <laughs> other personality, puts it pretty straight. Um, yeah, I moved to uh, Columbia uh, just a little bit over five years ago, if you can believe that. And uh, when I first got here, I was the director of the Office of Cultural Affairs. And then about a year and a half ago, I took the position of deputy city manager for the city here. So 
we've had a a really long week, that's for sure. Uh, probably, you know, started off with a council meeting. They went from seven to two thirty in the morning, and uh, finally, I've got my legs back underneath me to uh, open this show. <laughs> but my background has been music and theater uh, and art for you know as far as long as I can remember, and so it's it's something that's a part of me, and I'm glad I live in a community that allows whoever you are in whatever job and position that you are that you can follow you know what what your passion is and so this this uh, production and this particular script has been something i've been wanting to do for 20 plus years so mm. it's been great to do it okay and aaron you used to be a materials engineer that's right i'm a materials scientist i taught in the college of engineering for 25 years at mizzou i took up uh, community theater about 25 years ago thanks to my uh, dear friend willie wilson and i've been working at it ever since <laughs> you do a great job. I always love seeing things that you're in. So, Adam, as the new co-artistic director, you're picking up the kind of the tail end of Ed's season. Do you have a sense of why Ed chose Tuesdays with Maury? You know, I think Tuesdays with Maury is a very poignant script that really speaks to just about the experience of everybody. I, I don't know a single person out there that doesn't hasn't experienced a death in the family or a death of someone close to them and death comes with it a lot of different emotions there's depression and despair uh, but I think the biggest thing that comes with it is regret and what Tuesdays with Maury does as a show is it speaks to how to handle that despair that depression and that regret I think Maury says it best when he says you know, you, you did what you could. You had the, you did everything that you could at the time for what you knew how to do best. And I know for me personally, experiencing the death of my grandfather just four months ago, there was a lot of the question of, well, what would I have done if I had more time? And I don't know what the answer to that is. And I think that is accompanied by a lot of guilt of saying, well, I should have done more. But really, what could I have done? And so I think Ed looked at this show and said, this is something that everybody needs to hear, and it's something that will be therapeutic. JJ, give us a synopsis of the play. It's, uh, it's a memory play, first and foremost, and it's Mitch's memory of his uh, interactions with his uh, old college professor. And the bottom line is that... Uh, Mitch and Maury were close when uh, Mitch was an undergraduate student and Maury was his sociology professor in the, in, uh, in the 70s. And then after graduation, like so many of us do, we go on with our lives and we forget our teachers or we forget people maybe that we went to college with. And Mitch pursues a career first in the arts as a pianist. And then because of the loss of his uncle, his really his icon, then he decides that it's time to give up childish things like art and goes in to makes a career out of a journalist and really kind of shuts him off himself off from the world. And then, uh, you know, 17 years later, he hears an interview on Nightline with Ted Koppel with Maury, who has now uh, been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, it's he 
he hears him and he realizes that you know he he really wants to make contact with him again and so he does that and he starts visiting him on Tuesdays and starts recording the conversations and really starts to come out of his shell and to remember you know the love that he had for his professor and the love that he should have for everybody and it's a struggle for him to really open up now the, the play sounds like it's a real downer <laughs> but I got to tell you this play has more humor than most uh, shows that you will do and it is a very very funny show with most of the jokes coming from Maury uh, who is the one who's passing but it's a the show is a celebration about life and how to live your life better more than it is anything else so it is a script I read 20 plus years ago and I always wanted to do it and I never had a Maury to do it with me and so when this opportunity came along I thought I've got to do this show I really do and uh, I'm so happy to be doing it and it's a true story people should know I mean uh, you can go on to YouTube and you can see the interviews that Ted Koppel did with Maury if you are so inclined to um, I it was one of those books that I had heard about for years but I could never quite bring myself to read it because it seemed kind of a little woo-woo and a little touchy-feely which of course is ironic because that's exactly what Maury laughs at Mitch for being afraid of. So Erin you play Maury an old man to quote the book jacket to JJ's young man what was your relationship with the book slash play before you took the role? Well I resonated with uh, the character who died I think he was 78 I'm 75 so the, I, the age was was correct uh, he had a Jewish background although he wasn't observant in any way and I felt like although a lot of his touchy-feely ideas did not resonate uh, with me they do more now actually but I've been involved in meditation now for some years and uh, there's a lot of Buddhist thinking in this and certainly death being part of life is a, an important idea in, uh, in Buddhism. So I really like the character, I love the humor of course, uh, I like the script, uh, it's a very tight well, uh, well written script, uh, a marvelous uh, adaption of the book and uh, so there was, uh, and it was perfect for Talking Horse, absolutely perfect for Talking Horse. JJ, you said this was kind of a, a bucket list role for you to play Maury. Do you eventually hope to play, <laughs> I'll play Mitch, sorry, to play oh. Maury too? I mean, are both, both <laughs> parts are, are incredibly powerful. Yeah, uh, to tell you the truth, I never ever thought of that. Uh, <laughs> You're a but, bit young uh, yet, but yeah. when you become an old man. Yeah, when that happens, yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> But uh, no, that's that's an excellent thought. I would I would absolutely love to do that. What's interesting about this is that you know Maury, the character Maury is the the touchy feely one, and Mitch is the shut down one. And not that Aaron is shut down in any way, but we are completely <laughs> the opposite in life sometimes. And so when we first started working with this, uh, you know, we we talked a lot about how we're you know we're not bought in yet with the characters, and then as we just continued to work with it, how it all just started to uh, resonate and make more sense and everything. But no, that's that's fantastic. I would love to play Maury later on. The, the whole play, as you said, Adam, hinges on our kind of our fear of death as a society and how once we learn how to die, we can learn how to live. Meaning we need to strip away all the nonsense that we concern ourselves with and focus on the essentials. So as playing Maury and his student Mitch. How much introspection have these roles given you? How much has it changed how you perceive life and death? 
I've become much more aware of, you know, if you have something you want to say to somebody, if you have someone who's ill, you want to visit, you better do it now. And that's been my uh, dad, my parents actually visited sick, friend, sick friends regularly. It was one of their uh, really strong attributes. So I, the notion isn't alien, but saying things to people is something that I have had regrets on many occasions, and I think this will change the way I approach that. Yeah, I had a, without going too deep into it, but I had an event when I was 19 where I lost my mother, and I, uh, after that, I, it's funny, I had a very similar experience with her that Maury's character has with his mother as far as just didn't want to deal with the passing and, and uh, you know, ignored certain things so that I could go out and play and different things like that. And so after that happened, I've become maybe even more sappy than I should. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I probably drop the I love you to just about everybody way too often to the point where they're like, please, just can you just not hug me anymore? Uh, but uh, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to do the show uh, in many ways, because I just wanted to kind of work through that for myself. And the other thing I wanted to, why they want to do the show is because it's just so funny. It's just absolutely funny. And I love the idea of celebrating life through tragedies. And that's what this show does. It's just, it's just, you'll just, you'll leave it just laughing and shaking your head. And uh, it's, uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful show. I mean, it, it isn't, it isn't laugh out loud, hysterical funny. It's bittersweet. Isn't that yeah, true? There's, there's actually laugh out loud, hysterical <laughs> funny parts to it too. And uh, it's just one of those things where, you can't believe that that just came out of Maury's mouth. You know, one of those types of things, as only an old Jewish man in a wheelchair can do. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just perfectly written. The rhythm is kind of Yiddish in a way at times for both Mitch and Maury. And uh, it's, you know, in many ways, it reminds me of Neil Simon. You know, in many ways, the rhythm is very Neil Simon-like, where, you know, one of the greatest playwrights of all time just has that, that certain type of rhythm. So, yeah. Murray uh, talks often about how, how lucky he is because he has this time. He has this time to say goodbye to people, which, you know, you touched on. And uh, I, I often think about that. You know, if you're the person doing the dying, a quick out is really what you want. You don't want to be lingering for a long while. But if you're the ones left behind, that sudden death leaves you with so many regrets. So that, that idea of being lucky to have that time, to have this kind of slow degenerative disease is so counterintuitive to how we think we want our own end to be I guess. Um, so in prepping for our interview I read the book and I watched the TV movie which with all due respect to Hank Azaria and Jack Lemmon was awful. <laughs> there was just so much extra drama that wasn't in the book they made things up it just didn't follow the story of the book at all and it focused way more on Mitch's life than on Morris dying. I, I haven't read the play is the play more like the book? I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Uh, I think that there's a balance in it that probably wasn't in the movie. The balance is truly that, that you know, you, you have to have some sort of protagonist or that, that, that goes through a change at the end, and Mitch certainly does change, and Maury does too to a certain extent, but Maury was always loving life and things like that. So I think that there is a balance 
the danger that you have if you focus too much on Maury's dying is then it's just a sob fest and you know it's there's nothing there the humor's gone and all of that so I think the the play is written with a really really nice balance what do you think Aaron I agree I think it's true and I one thing I want to bring up is that this isn't mentioned in the play but Mitch really was changed uh, he's made a lot of money through his writing and his career. He's been a very successful journalist. He's 60 years old now. He's uh, still very active in Detroit. And he underwrites nine or ten charities in Detroit. He has an orphanage, sponsors an orphanage in Haiti. And he wasn't attuned to any of that, I think, you know, before this interaction with his, uh, his old professor. Yeah, Maury talks about the importance of community and giving back, finding a meaningful life. Um, here he says, um, uh, offering others what you have to give, give your time, your concern, your storytelling, finding a meaningful life, devote yourself to loving others, devote yourself to your community around you, and devote yourself to creating something that gives you purpose and meaning. And yes, I think Mitch Albom's worth $10 million now. So from this book, where Maury talks about how material things are immaterial, <laughs> Mitch has done very well for himself, but also he has given so much back to not only his community, but those those beyond too. This is a huge contrast, of course, between the characters because Maury believed in uh, human interaction uh, as being the most important thing, and Mitch was basically oblivious to all that, was career-oriented and uh, uh, you know, enterprise-oriented and uh, material-oriented. And Mitch originally decided to, you know, translate or transcribe those tapes and those conversations into this book to cover Maury's medical expenses. That was one of the right. main reasons to write the book. And he had a really hard time getting it published. Nobody would pick it up. And uh, finally, when it got published, <laughs> then, you know, it went like gangbusters, you know, so. Yeah, it's been number one and translated into I don't know how many languages, but all over, over the world. Monica... Yes. My co-host. Hello. You, you saw the play last night, and you <laughs> I said, did. and you said there was a lot of dirty crying by the end. There of was ugly crying by me and <laughs> other people in the audience. It was, it was, it's really profound. You know, what I will say is, I read the book in college, and I, I identified, you know, that part of me, my life, with early, when, when, um, when Mitch was a student, and he took all of these gems for granted. <laughs> and that's how I took the book. I took it for granted when I was 20-something and I read it. And last night, watching this story, and the, the, it was beautiful because you didn't lose the confessional diary quality of the book, you know, where you feel like Mitch is actually writing this for you to read. You didn't lose that in the, in the play version because you very much get to hear directly. You know, they always say show, don't tell, but you get to show and tell. You get to talk to the audience as Mitch, JJ, and bring us along on your journey. And you also get to show us this beautiful love relationship develop and grow. Well, not develop, because I think it was always there, as, as we hear from Maury. I think it was always there. It's just Mitch maybe wasn't as in touch with it as he was at the end of the play. But it's a beautiful story. I mean, I went home. I wanted to call at least five people. <laughs> but it was too late to call, so they're on my list for today. But I'm, I'm choking up just thinking about the emotions and, and the connections that, I mean, if art can do this to you, you know, if it can make you appreciate and understand why we're even here, that's what it's all about, mm -hmm. you know. For me, two of Maury's most powerful comments are that everybody knows they're going to die, but no one believes it mm -hmm. <clears throat> until you're facing it. Um, and that can kind of uh, locks you into kind of an existentialist circular thinking for hours at a time. And also that death ends a life, not a relationship, which I remember feeling when my mother died that even though she was no longer there, 
she's still my mother. That love still exists, and that's a really powerful message. There, there are so many uh, Mori aphorisms in the book and the play. So tell me what stand out for you, Aaron. Well, I think that the idea of not really confronting death when Maury says, uh, you know, I wish I'd been more aware of death every day of my life is is something that, well, it it enters your mind as you get into your 70s, I think, unless you're really thick. But, <laughs> but uh, and so the idea wasn't totally alien, but it's a very important uh, message. And I think the idea of saying things to people while you can and when uh, when they can appreciate it is a very important thing and it's a very hard thing for me to do personally i'm not a touchy-feely person <laughs> uh, and yet i'm playing this touchy-feely guy so of course in a theatrical context playing someone who's not exactly like you are is is a wonderful challenge mm -hmm. what about you jj well for me you know being touchy-feely <laughs> <laughs> Um, I know. I try not to. Uh, it's hard, difficult for me. Give me a the um, the idea that I, I think the most powerful speech for me is just his was Maury's speech when he's talking about how you know his mother was calling him from the window when she was sick and he you know he ignored it just because it was it was something that he didn't want to deal with. I think that that's one of the most powerful ones. But uh, I also like I've been blessed by doing plays and getting to say lines that you wish you were, you know, that you wrote and said them, you know, all, every day. But one of the lines at the very end was, you know, that uh, when he figures something out, he goes, if you, if you lead your life as Maury did with making people as the priority, making memories and giving of yourself, that when you die, you're not really gone. You live inside the hearts of everyone you've ever touched. And I love saying that line. It's a great line to say. It really is. Yeah. Adam, what about for you? What there? Uh, you've produced a play. You've obviously heard it quite a few times at this point. What uh, what hit you? My favorite is actually a question that Maury asks of Mitch, and it's pretty early on in the show. He asks, "Are you trying to be as human as you can be?" And I think that's that one resonates with me because, especially taking on a new role, new a new job, I I ask myself that all the time. Am I putting up this force field as it were of I can do everything I'm Superman or am I telling people am I showing people the cracks in in what I've got I think it's really important to be human to show your weaknesses to show your fears and things that make you weak because that shows who you really are and if you project this strong persona all the time you seem unapproachable that's a really, uh, you singled out a very important moment in the play because uh, when Mitch is going on and on about his career and how busy it is and how much he has to hustle to stay on top, Maury starts to give him a dirty look and starts questioning him, you know, are you at peace with yourself? And the play turns at that point and it really gets going. Mm -hmm. So last night was opening night. What did you hear people talking about? What did people? Do you have a box of tissues there ready <laughs> you for should, people? You should. It's a suggestion from the audience last night. <laughs> okay, all right, something to consider. <laughs> We've gotten a great response from the crowd that we had. We actually had a preview night the night before where we had some of our friends from Landmark Bank come to view the show, and we've gotten nothing but rave reviews from them. Um, I don't think I've seen a dry eye leave the house. <laughs> 
which is terrific. And I, I think I had a nice conversation with some folks last night where they said, you know, a lot of people want to come to theater because they think it's going to be entertaining and it's just going to make them laugh or it'll be a musical. But this I got so much more from because it's therapeutic. It said what I needed to hear. Aaron, as the dying man, are you drained at the end of the evening? Are you aware of the emotion that's being evoked just in front of you, this kind of room full of joy and tears? Not really. You know, I don't wear glasses, and I have a spotlight in my eye all night, so I don't mercifully. I'm not aware of what the audience is going through. You know, in my early days, I, people would leave with tears in their eyes, and that was because of my acting was so bad. Uh, uh, hopefully it's a little different now. But absolutely, I am drained. The final scene physically is draining because mm. I have to breathe in this breathy fashion. You know, a, 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 a Lou Gehrig's victim is inaudible and can barely be heard at the end. And the book, the script actually says, you know, you're going to have to cheat on that because otherwise no one will be able to hear you. So, mm. And so we did that through a breathiness that's exhausting, mm -hmm. but it's an emotionally draining play. And a two-man play is, is a very intense experience. I mean, you're out there from the beginning. I go off to change clothes, which is even more intense if you watch <laughs> me in the back there because I don't have much time. But it's, it is very emotionally and physically draining mm -hmm. to do a one-act, two-man show. JJ, are there parts of the play where it's tough to not get choked up as an actor? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Aaron and I actually started reading through the play uh, in February and March and uh, meeting, you know, once uh, every two weeks or something like that. And we had a we we couldn't get through the script when we first started working through this. And for me, it was all that personal stuff I've already mentioned. And it was just like, oh, this is just horrible. Forget this. But also with the uh, and really really enjoying the humor in it as well. Mm. But yeah, it's it, it all depends on the night. To tell you the truth, you know, and said so the chemistry and the, what's going on there. But uh, really, the end is uh, the very 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 end. The ending speech. Uh, which is very uplifting and very, so once again, a celebration of life. But, you know, it's the last line, you know. I, I realized why this I could be here and everything would be fine, and it's because it was on a Tuesday. And so that's the, that's the one that gets me more than mm -hmm. anything else. That's, that just gets me all the time. But it's just a, it's just a beautiful show. It's the type of theater I, I love to do. So, mm -hmm. yeah. To Talking Horses' credit, many of their plays challenge the audience. This is not a new... A thing that they've done and uh, that's the the hall is suited to that the acoustics are wonderful the sight lines are wonderful mm. uh, the audience is literally on the stage yeah. <laughs> because they insist on this front row what is that? Uh, we'll talk about that later but uh, and I'll point so out that Ed Hansen was on the front row by the way yeah that was a nice choice by right. Ed I noticed that last night when I came out. I said, oh, there you are. Thanks, yeah, well done. <laughs> I heard that later, fortunately. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, I think it's one of the things that's given, uh, given Talking Horse a vibrancy mm -hmm. that is to their credit. Yes. Yes, it does feel very, very close to the action. Adam, as a, as a last comment, give us a reminder of show dates, times, and tickets. Sure. So we are running tonight and tomorrow night. It's Friday and Saturday at 7.30 p.m., then Sunday at 2 p.m. And then the following week will be open for Friday and Saturday with a matinee on Sunday at 2 p.m. 
For tickets, you can go to TalkingHorseProductions.org, and they are $15 for adults and 13 for seniors. Thank you so much, Adam Bretsky, Aaron Krawitz, and JJ Musgrove. Tuesdays with Mari is on at Talking Horse Theatre this weekend and next, and you probably should take a packet of paper tissues with you. <laughs> <laughs> and you get to see Aaron dance. I don't think we talked about that, but that's that's a big plus. <laughs> I dance well on radio. <laughs> You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, and after the break, we'll be back with Dr. Joan Stack to talk about the new Thomas Hart Benton Show opening at the State Historical Society this weekend. Keep your ears close to the speakers. Some of the funds for this program are provided by listener support and through a donation from Socket. As a local internet, phone, and telecommunications provider for Missouri homes and businesses, Socket is proud to support community radio in Columbia and throughout Missouri. More information about Socket is available at socket.net or by calling 1-800-SOCKET-3. Okay, everybody, quiet in the studio, ready to record. Take one, three, two. Cue happy ukulele music. Cue Ruby. Misbehaving to you, young man. Oh, sorry. Greetings, Global KOPN listeners. Uh, could you bring down the volume on the happy ukulele music? I can't hear myself think. Oh, good. Thanks. Much better. Thank you, young man. Well, as I was saying, greetings to you, all global listeners. And this message is to inform you of an upcoming fundraiser for our beloved KOPN. There'll be lots of excitement and goings on, and you, yes, you, will be invited to join or renew your membership to KOPN. It's coming September the 12th through the 18th, so be sure to tune in and join in. No dropping out here, please. Meanwhile, I always say the best advice is to stay calm and carry on. Cut misbehaving. Fade. Happy ukulele music. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And it is a pleasure to have Joan Stack here from the State Historical Society to talk about the new Thomas Hart Benton show opening tomorrow called Benton's Perilous Visions. Welcome, Joan. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's nice to be here. I feel like I know you because I've spent so many years listening to your interviews on the Paul Pepper show. And I know your father, the artist Frank Stack, and your husband is a fellow Brit. Yes. Um, but I don't think we have ever actually sat down and talked together. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> So Benton's Perilous Visions opens tomorrow. Tell me all about it. Well, uh, some of you may know that way back in 1944, the Abbott Laboratories, who had custody of Thomas Hart Benton's series of war paintings called The Year of Peril, which were done very, very quickly between the end of 1941 and spring of 1942, decided to donate them to the State Historical Society of Missouri. It's kind of a long story, but they'd originally intended to donate them to the federal government, but in 1944, for whatever reason, not enough room, they didn't like the paintings, we're not quite sure, uh, they deferred and said, well, why don't you donate them to a Missouri agency? So they ended up at the State Historical Society of Missouri and were actually installed in 1945. There is an article in our Missouri Historical Review about 
the the exhibition of these paintings in Ellis Library in 1945 before the war is over. So it, they've got this really interesting history here at the um, University of Missouri and in Columbia. Now, Benton himself also agreed that they ought to come here. Uh, he wanted to see them in a historical museum because he felt they were very tied to the history of the time. And he donated a, another painting. There were eight paintings in the Year of Peril series, all very powerful, uh, anxious, uh, tumultuous paintings representing, in, in some ways, the horror of war. Uh, but Bitten decided to donate another work he had done uh, called The Negro Soldier, which was of a heroic soldier an individual showing the power of the individual to make a difference in the war. And this also became part of our collection, a donation directly from Thomas Hart Benton. So these things have been at the State Historical Society for many, many years. Uh, but we have moved house a number of times. At the time they were first displayed, the State Historical Society occupied the entire east wing of the library. So the paintings were actually on display on the third floor. Somebody may remember <laughs> seeing them there, but, um, but eventually uh, the State Historical Society gave up that space, and when the library expanded, created a, a nice gallery on the ground floor, which is where they are today. However, the exhibition space is not huge. We also have a number of works by George Caleb Bingham, and we like to have changing shows in this space. So we are usually only able to show about five of the paintings at a time. So you may have come into the State Historical Society and seen some of them. Uh, the nine paintings that came to us in 1944 plus a 10th, which came after Benton's death in 1975, which he also felt was related to this theme of World War II, and it represents soldiers preparing to get on an LST ship to travel, uh, in this case, probably to North Africa uh, from the United States. So we have two images that deal with the experience of the soldiers and eight images that deal with the horror of war. Uh, so the last time all 10 were on display together, uh, I'm not sure. I, it's, they haven't all 10 been displayed together in a unified show since I've been here. In 2012, we displayed all the Year of Peril paintings, all eight of those, in a show we entitled 1942, about the anxiety in America in 1942 when there was real fear that the United States might lose World War II. But other than that, you haven't had the opportunity to see them all together for a long time. So we are uh, inaugurating this exhibition on Saturday at 1.30. You can come and visit us. It's free and open to the public. We'll have light refreshments. And at 1.30, I will begin a walkthrough where I will talk about each of the paintings, talk about what Benton said about them, talk about some of the scholarly interpretations of the paintings, talk about how we can think about them. I've actually divided them into uh, to three different types of paintings. Uh, one type is the allegorical, symbolic paintings that don't represent real events or even real people, but symbolic imagery. Uh, there's also images of anticipated visions, fear of what might come to the United States, things that 
people in Britain, for example, had experienced invasion, uh, firebombing, all of those things. I guess Britain never was invaded, but, uh, but certainly people in France and Belgium had experienced invasion. So one of our paintings is called Invasion and imagines what it would be like to um, if the United States was invaded. And another one uh, represents a firebombing of the United States and the horror of that people I know did experience in Britain where you'd go out and you find a family member dead and um, and it, it, Benton actually creates a very effective image of that kind of experience. Now his, uh, the series of paintings were created as a result of the attack on Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December 1941 and he cancelled his speaking engagements. He just heard about the bombing and he said cancel everything I need to go back and I need to paint. So he sequestered himself in his studio for nine weeks. Talk about his frame of mind at this time. This is also just after he'd been fired from the Kansas City yeah. Art Institute as well. Yeah it's hard to know exactly. He was he was doing the speaking tour in part because of being fired and he wanted to promote his conception of an American art. It's often reduced to the idea of regionalism and that sort of fits, but I think he, he basically wanted artists to reflect life in America as it existed, to, to reflect the social conditions, all of the different aspects of being an American, to create a, a, an art about America. So he was traveling around the country um, promoting this cause, but I think with the attack on Pearl Harbor it really was a shock to Americans who always felt like this was never going to happen to them and Benton in a way reflected that uh, that experience and so one of the things I think so great about these images is though they sort of reflect the mindset of one man they are also reflective of a general uh, intense anxiety fear uh, determination to do something, all of these different emotions that Americans were experiencing uh, right after the Pearl Harbor attack. So as you said, he comes to Kansas City, so these paintings were all done in Missouri, and, uh, and paints this series of images. His original intention, these were not commissioned, these, his original intention was to talk uh, the, um, the people at Union Station into letting him display them there. He had succeeded in that sort of project before, painting something and then going to the people and saying, don't you want to put this up? Uh, so that was his his kind of plan. And, and I've always thought it would be interesting to find out, go to Union Station and think about where these might have been positioned uh, in in that space. Uh, we don't really know exactly, but there are some giant ones, there's some medium-sized ones. They probably were designed for specific spaces, and they were conceived, I think, to be seen together in a mural-like way. We know Benton was a muralist, and one of the things I'm going to talk about during my tour is that we display these images wrong. Uh, they are all, well, at least the giant ones, are too low. Uh, Benton envisioned a lot of them as having their bottom uh, section being at about eye level. And for us, we can't fit them in the gallery that way, which is one of the reasons we are eventually moving to a new building next year where we'll be able to display these a little bit better. But uh, so we have to keep that in mind as we look at the Benton thought like a muralist. He was uh, very much like the old masters who very much considered the context of their original artwork and how it was going to be placed in the way they painted them. So, um, so anyway, so he had planned them for Union Station, and while he was working on them, his dealer in New York, Reeves Lewenthal, who was um, who ran a, 
a gallery called Associated American Artists Gallery, and Benton did lithographs uh, with them and also showed with them from time to time, came and saw these paintings, and he was amazed. He thought they, they resembled um, Goya's war series. He thought they were very powerful. Uh, he thought that they represented the horror of what you know, we later learned was the Holocaust, but we didn't know the extent of it at the time, but they certainly preview it. I mean, there is a lot of horrific imagery in there about genocide and what's going on in uh, both uh, the German Empire and the Japanese Empire. And so he felt that they needed a national audience and arranged for them to be shown in New York. And in New York, they had an audience of hundreds of thousands and also there was a newsreel made and uh, you can still see that newsreel. You can probably find it on the internet, uh, which is very interesting. You get to see Benton actually talking about the images and you see how the, um, the kind of general public is connecting them with a form of propaganda. But I think it's important to remember that these are not the purest form of pop propaganda because Benton painted what he wanted to paint. He was not, these images were not dictated to him by the government or by anyone else. So you get some very odd imagery for propaganda, images that don't show the United States soldiers in a particularly positive light. He did this one very horrific painting uh, called Exterminate, in which he shows the soldiers as almost as monstrous as the monstrous figures that they're destroying. And I think there was a message there that in wartime, we do things that maybe we don't want to do that are inhuman in a way, the very nature of war is inhuman. So in some ways, they're kind of anti-war war paintings, but they have been very controversial over the years. Um, I think Benson, I was reading something, he, he, that he knew they were propaganda for the war effort. Um, and there was an introduction that he wrote for a pamphlet, which we'll come back to by Abbott Laboratories. And he says, there are no bathing beauties <laughs> dressed up in soldier outfits in these pictures. There are no silk stockinged legs. There are no pretty boys out of collar advertisements to suggest that this war is a gigolo party. <laughs> there is no glossing over of the kind of hard ferocity that men must have to beat down the evil that is now upon us. There is no hiding of the fact that war is killing and the grim will to kill. In these designs, there is none of the Pollyanna fat that the American people are in the habit of being fed. So he was hit his gloves off. I mean, yeah. he knew that they were powerful propaganda paintings and he wanted to jolt the masses. He wanted yeah. to jolt the middle of America into recognizing what danger they were facing. And of course, in places like Missouri and Iowa and uh, the Middle West, we had a large population of people whose ancestry was German. And some of those people were reluctant. They may not like what Hitler is doing, but they knew what war would bring to their uh, relatives and um, and people that they may still be in, in correspondence with in Germany, and they felt that perhaps it was best for the United States to stay out of it. Um, and Benton was aware of this, I think, uh, and he felt that the Middle West was particularly isolationist, and these paintings in some ways, especially had they been on display in a Union Station in Kansas City, would have really hit that group uh, very hard. Uh, when I say that they're not pure propaganda, I mean that the artist retained control over the imagery. And I think that in some of the imagery that you see uh, during World War II, you do see the smiling soldier eager to go off to war, making it not seem as horrific as it really is. And that is what he wanted to avoid. And the 
one of the paintings that we have on display that does deal with this experience of the soldier is embarkation, which shows the soldiers getting on the ship, uh, going off to war. And apparently that was the army supported, allowing him to go in and do some sketches of soldiers uh, at, at the harbor in uh, Brooklyn. And he did the painting thinking they might use it in a similar way that they had been using the Year of Peril pictures. And by the way, when, I, when we talk about Abbott Laboratories buying these pictures, they bought them, they retained control over them, but they bought them to use in conjunction with the federal government. In fact, they were, this was their way of supporting the war effort. They, they were interesting in that they actually uh, supported the idea of going to, to actual uh, artists, not commercial artists, and encouraging them to do uh, imagery that they felt maybe would be more powerful than just the commercial artist imagery. And so there were some other artists they worked with, Joseph Hirsch, for example. Is, and that is, was a movement that um, kind of this idea of using artists for industrial advertising yeah. was something that Reeves Leventhal and the Associated yeah. Artists of America Gallery in New York, he was he was brokering a lot of those yeah. deals, and he brokered the deal with Abbott, with Charles Down yes, at Abbott that's right. for the Benton painting. And of too. course, he, w- he, he talked Benton into doing some advertising, <laughs> and there's some really interesting things that Benton did in conjunction with that. But that was always a very um, a difficult relationship between Benton and, and advertisers, because he didn't like to be told what to do. And uh, anyway, the Army didn't ended up not liking this painting. It was too dark. It had too much of a melancholic and negative feel to it. And it showed the so, the one soldier that actually looks out at the audience and kind of breaks that uh, fourth wall uh, seems sad and, and to be maybe thinking of home and the people he's leaving behind. And they didn't want soldiers to be reminded that that's the way it is. And, and Benton defended it as being very true. Uh, but... Um, but anyway, it was never used. But we find that that one is a particularly powerful one with audiences today, and I think reflects the universal aspects of this series. And I think that that's an important thing that we can see with historic distance, that some of the imagery that he's representing, it does apply certainly to World War II, but it applies to all war. And it's, um, and it's disturbing for those reasons. The one that I think is really powerful is called Casualty, in which Benton talks about uh, we hear about casualties in war, and we tend to just, um, you know, hear a bunch of numbers and, not, and forget that there is a wounded or dead body attached to each one of those casualties. But back to the embarkation image, I find that um, when we have military families in, they will often say, I've seen that look. I can recognize that look of that soldier who looks back, doesn't know if, if he or she is coming back. And so it's a very powerful uh, image, and uh, I think that people will respond uh, well to that. We do have imagery that is more disturbing and more problematical. Benton participated in the general tendency during that period to uh, use racial, to, to villainize the Japanese in particular using racial stereotypes. And there are a couple of images that reflect that. Uh, he tends to make the Japanese all look like Tojo with the exaggerated buck teeth. And, um, and I think, you know, it's unfortunate because I think it distracts from the more interesting messages in, in the pictures. But we can't excuse it. It's definitely part of uh, Benton's images and it's part of the, the era. So we can learn from, from those aspects, as I think we can learn from the entire uh, series. I, I really do think the, one of the most valuable things about it as a national treasure, not just for Missouri, is that 
it allows us to step into the past. And by looking at these images, we, we start to feel anxious. We start to feel a little bit uneasy. And, um, and that allows us to maybe feel a little bit vicariously those feelings that people felt in the past and better understand them. In, in today's world of extra sensitivity, you almost want to kind of give some trigger warnings because some of those paintings are brutal. Yes, yes. I, I would, um, it tend, we, it tends, they tend to be fairly popular with kids, but I might say if your kid is very sensitive to violence, um, you might not want to bring your kids and, um, and probably kids under elementary school age, they might be a little much for them. Uh, they, he, they are very stylized. If you're familiar with Benton's style, they, um, there's a disconnect from the reality in some ways because of the stylization. I mean, there are severed heads, but they sort of seem cartoonish in a way. Still upsetting and disturbing to see, but... Uh, However, as I said, if you, if you know that you're particularly sensitive or your children are particularly sensitive, images like Exterminate, which shows um, these soldiers, there's these kind of monstrous figures. I, they, they are human-like, but they're really kind of giant ogre figures representing uh, Japan and Germany. And one of them is being disemboweled, and you see them pulling chains. Again, this is one of these allegorical images. So the chains represent the, the attempts of these countries to enslave their people, and the soldiers are, are pulling those chains out of the body. And so it really gets across the idea of, of extermination. Uh, and this is the one with the very unsympathetic uh, figures of the American soldiers. And I think that was a really interesting decision that Benton made. It makes you, uh, and I think some, there's some resistance to the image because these are, I, I think he intentionally makes them unheroic because in a way he doesn't think this is a heroic endeavor to, um, to exterminate a force and in the process you kill lots of people. Uh, however, um, you know, this is, a, this is a, an eternal question. Is it, is it worth it? You know, to drop the atomic bomb and, and kill lots of people to end the war. Uh, remembering that Benton was actually in World War I himself. And I often think of uh, Woodrow Wilson's um, dictate that this was a war to end all war, wars. And so it was a war to stop war. And I think that that is probably Benton's mindset, that he is uh, following that, um, that idea that in order to stop the violence... We have to participate in the violence. Uh, but, I mean, obviously there are many people uh, who, who don't agree with that. So, so I think it's an interesting thing to see. And, and, um, and yet I think even a pacifist would look at some of the images of the horror, the, the, uh, the mother going out and seeing her, her dead child, for example, in which Benton uh, paints this sort of surrealistic image with this strange face of the mother, but her hands are clasped up next to her head, and, a, and it's almost surely an homage to Edward Munch's uh, The Scream, so this kind of image of horror, uh, a very effective uh, picture that, that represents the, the hor horrific nature of war. So you sort of find a schizophrenic uh, quality to these images, which makes them very interesting, I think. That one you mentioned, The Harvest, I think mm -hmm. it's called. And again, there's another, I'm going to read another little passage that Benton wrote to accompany their work. Uh, he said, Farmers of America 
who yet look comfortably over your quiet fields. You are going to be called upon this year to work harder than you have ever worked in your lives. Respond to the call that those who are fighting for you may keep their bellies full and their muscles hard. Without your help, the soldiers and sailors who battle for the safety of your land cannot maintain their strength. If they fail in their strength, your strength will be of no avail when the plains of the enemy come over the hills and down the valleys of America to reap your fields with fire. Yeah, so it's a different kind of harvest. Several of them have a kind of an ironic title, and so the harvest is one of those. Um, I do think of Britain in this case. My, um, You mentioned my husband is British, and his... Um, his father lived through the Blitz in Sheffield, which was an industrial city, and he, he experienced that. He, as a, a teenager, went out on fire watch to watch for fires, watch for signs that the Germans were bombing. I mean, it, it, it must have been a really horrific, frightening time. And, and this is a real reminder of those things. I, I do think we've become even more complacent in the 21st century because it has been so long since Americans have experienced those things. But, but perhaps this is a bit of a reminder. When the show opens in New York, and you, I said there was the, you know, the hundreds, or I think it said 75,000 that had visited the show, and then Paramount created the newsreel. But, but the accolades didn't last terribly long, and, and Benton was criticized for the graphic content of the works. The New Republic called them Benton's bad paintings. <laughs> Art News referred to them as vague Baroque mannerisms and the silliest scenes in Donald Duck mix-ups <laughs> with jam and flypaper. Why did the establishment turn on him? Well, I think there's two things going on here. First is the anti-Benton uh, art establishment that is really sees the, his movement towards a representational art, towards a, uh, art that is not abstracted, uh, which I think is kind of interesting because by abstracting and getting rid of the subject, you get rid of any controversy. <laughs> but, um, but that was really where the art world was going. So Benton is sort of a villain already in, by 19... Uh, among those people. So some of the things about them being bad paintings, I think, reflect that. Though if you look at them, if you try to ignore the subject, they are beautifully painted. Mm -hmm. And these beautiful columns of fire and the way he uses negative space, they're just uh, pretty amazing formally. Uh, be that as it may, I don't think they could see that, perhaps, because they were so prejudiced against Benton. Uh, the other problem, of course, was that as the United States started to be more successful in the war, these images of the horror of war became less effective. Um, more heroic images, you, you actually see that if you follow the posters uh, during the period. In 1942, there are images that are similar in some ways to what Benton was doing uh, in, in the posters. But uh, by 1944, for example, when, we, when they eventually give the paintings to us because they don't, won't need them anymore, uh, they are much more about American victory about you know the the heroism of participating in war, and so I think you see that the anxiety had started to be reduced a little bit as it became fairly clear the United States wasn't going to be invaded. I mean, I'm not sure exactly when that happens, but certainly by 1943 or 1944. So, so I think again, there's two currents being represented there: a feeling that this this is too violent and too horrible, and why are you representing this? This doesn't make soldiers want to go out and fight, and um, and also this 
this distaste of Benton in general. Uh, what's very interesting is they're not particularly um, realistic, these images. They're very, the, the landscapes are very surreal. Uh, people have talked about the influence of Salvador Dali on, on these paintings, and they also have a very strong expressionist uh, element. So, um, so I think, again, we can depart from these old uh, prejudices against Benton and really look at the paintings anew. Joan, thank you so much. The show opens tomorrow. You can hear Joan talk from 1.30 uh, till 3 tomorrow afternoon at the State Historical Society. And it is a rare chance. Benton's 10 uh, paintings that uh, are part of the Year of Peril plus two more. Benton's Perilous Visions, <laughs> uh, first time to see it for many years here in Columbia. Joan, thank you so much for coming in to tell us all about it. Yes, thank you so much. Okay, so um, we're going to end the show with a roundup of the things that are coming up, the events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Columbia. And also I want to say that next week's show is particularly interesting because I have um, deviated from the usual format and I have three short segments. It is Fund Drive Week next week from the 12th to the 18th. And so I went off and I asked three people to give me a lesson, a lesson in how to speak with a North Carolina Kentucky accent. <laughs> My roses are growing. Uh, I learned some improv <laughs> nice. from the stable boys and then i went down to visit with my friends at the yin yang club and they gave me a drag queen makeover which will be available on video for a small donation to your favorite community radio station. But anyway, here's the events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Columbia. Tonight is First Friday in the North Village Arts District, and as usual, there is a panoply of drop-in events going on, with most events from 6 till 9. Wall Street Studios has the official opening for Beneath the Surface, the one-read art exhibit that accompanies the book Flowers of the Killer Moon. There'll be live music by the Daves, and the art show winners will be announced around 6 the exhibit will be on display through September the 29th. At the Sega Browdis Gallery, there's the first chance to see their September show and also to catch the Eric Sweet Memorial Pop-Up Fundraiser, which is being hosted in conjunction with the Mizzou School of Visual Studies and the George Caleb Bingham Gallery. All the 81 works in the show have been donated by other local artists and are available for purchase through tomorrow night. All the monies raised go to support the Eric Sweet exhibition and speaker series at the George Caleb Bingham Gallery. At the Resident Arts Gallery, you can peruse their first nationally juried show called Can't Take You Anywhere, featuring nine artists from across the country. At Fretboard Coffee, the Jazz Junkies and Debonair Dinosaur perform tonight. And at Logboat Brewing Company, the Missouri Contemporary Ballet is holding the third annual Danceability Fundraiser from 4.30. Now, if it's raining, this is an outdoor event, so there's a rain date of September the 14th. You can catch Paula Poundstone live at the Missouri Theatre at 8 this evening. And tonight is the second night of a seven-show run for Tuesdays with Maury at Talking Horse Theatre. That show starts at 7.30 and tickets are 15. And at Maplewood Barn, their production of Sherlock Holmes and the Adventures of the Suicide Club is in its final weekend with shows starting at 8 tonight through Sunday. It's Slow Art Saturday at Sega Browdis from 11 till 2 tomorrow with the addition of a visiting speaker talk with Catherine Armbrust walking people through the Eric Sweet pop-up exhibit. On Saturday, the State Historical Society has the grand opening for Benton's Perilous Visions from 1.30 till 3. Also tomorrow, Violet and the Undercurrents perform live at the station at Catfish Caters at 6. And at Cooper's Landing, there is the 13th annual Eco Art Fest, organized by the Missouri River Cultural Conservancy. The event starts at 1 o'clock on both days and includes live music, artist booths, a children's center, and instructional workshops. It is a free event, and other than service dogs, please leave your pups at home.
On Sunday, there's another art exhibit opening, this one at the Mont Mini Gallery, the Boone History and Cultural Centre, and featuring the works of David Spear and Kelly Collier. Both artists exhibiting more than 25 works, which makes it the biggest show of their works for many years. That's a free-to-attend reception, and that's from 1 till 3 on Sunday. On Tuesday, Skylark Bookshop has their first-ever author reading with N. Elliot Reed drops by to read from his book, The Key to Treehouse Living. This is a free event and starts at 7. And Rose Music Hall welcomes two bands from Athens, Georgia, when family and friends Anne Walden drop into town. The show starts at 8 and entrance is $12. On Wednesday, catch another in the One Read series of events with a screening of Big Men at the Columbia Public Library. Later on Wednesday evening, Cafe Berlin hosts the Columbia Jazz Jam at 9. And Wednesday at Rose Park is the last in their Movies in the Park summer series with a screening of Scream. Film starts at 8.30 and admission is free. Thursday the 13th of September is opening night for the Columbia Entertainment Company's production of Cabaret, which runs for three weekends. And finally, next Thursday evening, the Columbia Public Library hosts a one-read talk from 7 to 8 entitled The Osage Nation, A Brief History. You've been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend, co-host and sound engineer, Monica Palmer. I'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews about the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia. Thank you.